0: Reveille, reveille, dogs! Look at us now, tip to tip.
2: This is our life. This is our passion. That's the spirit we bring to this show. I'm
0: Luke Thomas. I'm Brian Campbell. This is Morning Combat. While well, you was arguing who's getting the top of the bunk, I was arguing about who's getting the Glock or the Pump. Hello, everyone, and welcome. It is Friday. It is MK Day and I am Luke Thomas. How are you doing on this 19th of November 2021? Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, unfortunately, and I do mean that sincerely, unfortunately, it is a day without Brian Campbell. He is not here with me today because he is out discovering the wonders of all-inclusive buffets somewhere in sunny Jamaica. I am, am somewhat envious of him, but I also know that, you know, you never really see a place if you just go the all-inclusive buffets but neither here nor there i am here to get you ready for a weekend slate of fights so on the docket today for the show we're going to try and do as close to the normal thing as possible i got a ton of multimedia to show you throughout the course of today's show so sit back relax i'm going to get you ready i'm going to show you some visual evidence i'm going to have some fun things to look at along the way plus we'll do dead wrong at the end and tip to tip but of course on the slate the thing that's most important we'll get to some boxing news We'll get to some MMA news, but we have two giant, well, giant's a strong word, but two nice events worth talking about. One pretty big on the boxing side, one of a decent importance on the MMA side. Of course, Misha Tate returns to action against Kitlin Vieira. We'll discuss that and a couple of the fights underneath on that card. And then the bigger one of the two is in boxing, which of course, uh, Bud Crawford takes on Sean Porter in a main event over on top Rank ESPN. Alright, so first things first, give the video a thumbs up if you are so inclined. Hit subscribe. Always appreciate that when you do. Morning Combat's name, as you can see here on the lower third, is the same consistently everywhere. You can go to youtube.com slash morningcombat or morningcombat on Instagram, morningcombat on Twitter. As you can tell, BC and I have slightly different names between Instagram and Twitter, but you may give us a follow there just the same. Uh, Showtime is the label that pays me. So you can go to showtime.com and get a 30-day free trial. If you like it, you can keep it. If not... Go do what you want with your life, but you're missing out on a lot if you don't, in fact, get it. We have an email address on this show, morningcombat at gmail.com. That's where you send your Wednesdays fan submissions. It's where you send your Friday's dead wrongs. We're going to do dead wrong today. I think it's just going to be my dead wrong. So, well, BC is going to have an absolutely grand edition of it upon his return for him. But for now, um, I will take all of your arrows, and I will accept them because Ls are Ls, and you must take them on occasion. Um, What else am I missing? I don't think there's any other reads we have to do today, but um, oh yes, leave us a five-star review so you can help us scam the algorithm on Apple Podcast and give us uh, a nice review if you want. I believe we are deciding those in the next week or two, not dead serious, about which ones we're going to give a gift certificate to. Oh, and before I forget, and how could I? Speaking of gift certificates, you can go to MorningCombat.store. You can go to MorningCombat.store. Not only do we have tons of merch, do we have the graphic available for our bestsellers? I don't know if we do. Yeah, there it is. You can see it. The Dead Luke Tee is the one I had on Wednesday. The MK Classic Comfy Tee and then the Orchids of Combat. These are our current bestsellers. Of course, that can change. Drug rugs are on their way in the whole nine yards. Uh, But you can go to MorningCombat.store. And if you're unclear, as I mentioned gift cards, if you're unclear about what to purchase, you don't know... Uh, You can get a gift card for somebody, for you or yourself or whatever. Uh, I don't know why you would get a gift card for yourself, certainly, but for someone else, you could. You could do that. You could get them a gift card if you're feeling that way. Okay? All right. So I am not going to waste time here. They say in radio, if you're not speaking about your topic, within the first two minutes of being on air, you're doing it wrong. Granted, this is not radio and I'm six minutes in, but I like to keep things as parsimonious as possible. There's your 10-cent word for the day. All right? With that in mind, let's begin Topic number one. Topic number one, of course, is going to be UFC Fight Night Vegas 43. Or I think UFC Fight Night 198 or UFC Vieira versus Tate. Whatever name you want to give it. There are three fights that I want to point to on this card that I want to take a look at. Obviously, it's going to be your main event between Kitlin Vieira and Misha Tate. It'll be your co-main event between Michael Chiesa and Sean Brady. And lastly, I want to take a look at the, very, very briefly, but the Adrian Yanez fight. All right. On Wednesday, let me put this back here just a little bit, Brian and I discussed what the storylines were going to be for this fight. We had kind of initially viewed it as something of a moving the chains fight, right? You know, this is something to see if Tate can not just get back to form, obviously I think by the end of the fight against Renault she was looking a little bit more like the the Tate that we are accustomed to seeing, but, you know, getting that second camp behind that first camp. The first camp is never, not never, it is not unusual for everything to not necessarily be in order. It's usually by that second camp that things begin to get there. But I will actually tell you, I haven't gone back, and in preparation for today's show, I watched, I think, all of Kitlin Vieira's fights in UFC up to this point. And I actually think it's more than that. To me, it's not that if Tate loses this fight, we are in a place automatically where we can declare she's not back. But what I would say is if she can't beat Ket- Ketlin Vieira, you can begin to question about really how far can Tate go on this return to form. But this return to the Octagon, this sort of second stint she has after her brief Altogether, some, I say brief, you know what, maybe not so brief. Um, somewhat lengthy, actually, is a better way to put it. Retirement, four years almost, right? A long time, a presidential cycle, and then some. Um, Ketlin Vieira, I don't know if she's championship material or not. I, I, I guess I don't know if that's the point of this fight. Maybe she is, maybe she isn't. I'm not declaring that to be the most important observation here. Rather, what I am saying to you, and you can see pictures over here, Dude, she's a tough test for Misha Tate. She's a tough test. Now, let's. We got some of her slides here. You can see her fight against Aldana. I don't really feel like Aldana's the right comparison for a lot of reasons. I sent in some of the numbers for these two. I wonder if they can pull that slide up for me here very quickly because I want to show you some of these. Now, the numbers might be hard to read, in which case, if they are, I will read them out to you. Do we have those numbers, Gaff? Yeah, here we go. Um, You can ignore some of the stuff in the top third of this graphic. What I want you to pay attention to is in the second and bottom third. Now, in terms of the striking, I feel like it's anybody's fight when it comes to that. You can see that Misha Tate has a negative differential, where she has landed fewer strikes than she's absorbed by a full integer and then some. That's not great, but it doesn't necessarily tell you the full story. Also, the striking accuracy, 36%. You know, we we know that that's, you know, she's just not going to have a high volume of activity on the feet. And if she does, most of that's probably not going to be at range. The better stuff she can do is going to be in the clinch and other places. For Kitlin Vieira, a little bit more capable on the feet, certainly, especially when she uses that to close distance. Um, but to me, that's not really where it's going to be won or lost. The numbers there that I want to pay attention to are takedown averages. For Kitlin Vieira... Sorry, I had their number backwards. I'm sorry. Vieira had the negative differential, 3.84 to 266. And it was Tate who's actually a little bit more even. Apologies. I'm reading the table wrong. Uh, Still, either way, I I never would have imagined that Kitlin Vieira is going to win this on her feet. Tate maybe. Maybe could win on her feet. It's not impossible. But I don't think you guys probably think that's going to be the best way to get her win Either. It's going to be probably on the floor, and that's where it matters. Takedowns per 15 minutes for Kitlin Vieira, 2.19 for Misha Tate, 2.16. Nearly identical. Nearly identical. Takedown accuracy, 48-32. to 32. Now again, that 32, I would argue, has come against somewhat better opposition. Nevertheless, it's not like every time Tate tries to go for a takedown, it's lights out. I know she changed her name uh, I think it was either Cupcake to t- to Takedown or Takedown to Cupcake. I can't remember anymore, but she certainly at one time was known as Takedown. Don't let the accuracy fool you. I- 48 is about where Habib is for Kitlin Vieira. 32 is not great, um, but it would show you that she would kind of have to spam attempts to get there. The Takedown defense. See, this one is the big one, 92% for Kitlin Vieira, 52% for Misha Tate. Now that also is somewhat deceiving. And you could take the graphic off the screen there if you don't mind. The reason why it's a little bit deceiving is because someone like Tate might elect to fight the battle on the ground if an opponent takes it there. I don't think she's altogether opposed to it. But here's the scenario that I want to give you. This is the one I saw pretty commonly. Here is what Misha Tate is up against when she takes on Kitlin Vieira. First of all, Let's say it does get to the ground and Tate gets on top. A very plausible scenario, right? Um, From bottom position, what does Vieira do? Number one, she's probably going to accept position. She's not super big on using the guard or anything else to scoot her hips back to the fence or to stand. She's content to play guard. From there she goes a little bit rubber guard. She looks for omoplata's. She will uh, switch angles underneath with her hips to frame for arm bars. So if you're looking at this fight and we see a condition where Misha Tate is on top, what you should be looking for is to what extent is Vieira looking for omoplata's or using rubber guard, and to what extent is she framing underneath and switching her hips underneath to look for any kind of armbar. Remember, you can't really get an armbar if you're directly square upon someone. You have to create an angle. It's that angle change, and she's very good about that. Now, here's the thing, though. She's active about it. She's not that great about using it all that successfully other than as something of a disruptor of offense. In other words, is she a major armbar threat? Sort of. I mean, if someone's twisting underneath, you have to respect it. But like, for example, against Yana Kunitskaya, she couldn't really get it. She did slow down some of the ground and pound, though. That was sort of the part. She kind of accepted the position, but then slowed down the ground and pound by collar tying, bringing her legs up high, framing underneath, switching her hips underneath. That sort of a thing, right? So that's one scenario you should be looking for. But I think Tate can win that if she has enough activity on top. The thing that's going to be interesting is if Ketlin Vieira gets on top. Because again, on the feet, Vieira has a couple of nice entries into a takedown. But she wings a lot of shots at distance. She could take punishment in certain positions. Her takedown defense is interesting. Along the fence line, she's heavy on first-order takedown priorities being elbowing someone in the fence, hammer fisting someone in the fence, trying to get them to suffer punishment if they get pressed there. Um, Something that we should be uh, on the lookout for. Conversely, I think if Tate gets taken down, which Ketlin Vieira is capable of doing, especially if she's going to be striking her way to the inside of that position, the question is, what is Tate going to do? Now, I mentioned she might accommodate that because I also think she likes to wrestle with her legs, frame underneath and whatnot. Tate's got an interesting choice here. Can she win the fight on the feet? Maybe, maybe, but it's five rounds. It's going to be a tougher way to do it. Eventually, she's going to have to get on top. And eventually, she's going to have to land some ground and pound. So that means eventually, you're going to have to get out of the guard of Ketlin Vieira. You're going to move to half guard or something along those lines. Vieira, by the way, on the ground will pass. She likes to look for mount. She'll stay in half guard if she has to. Obviously, we know Tate has good ground and pound and can pass as well. But I think, operatively, if Tate can't get the takedown, I'm not saying she can't win because it's not clear if Vieira will be able to get it either. Although I suspect she probably would. But like, let's imagine they're on the feet. That one's going to be just coin flip. I don't. I don't really know. To me, this is when this is going to come down to who can consistently establish not just a takedown but top control. Who is the one pressing the other one into the fence? I should also argue that. I need to see Tate's modern fence wrestling because the uh, offensive fence wrestling of Ketlin Vieira, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. She's good about getting herself in between her opponent and the fence. She's good at some takedowns with some body locks. She's good at not so much even head trips. Um, She's good at uh, uh, foot sweeps. Right? She'll get you moving in space, and then as one foot gets light, she'll kick it out and then turn you in the same direction. She's really quite gifted at that. So that's what you're looking for there. But this is an interesting one. You've got two people who don't have exactly the same skill sets, but two people whose probabilistic avenues to victory are more or less the same. More or less, they need to get their opponent moving backwards. More or less, they probably need to get them against the fence. More or less they need to get them down and then more or less they have to advance position. Really, that's I don't I don't know what the what the clear path to victory is for either of them absent those conditions. We know Vieira off of her back will work her guard at a bare minimum as a disruption, not a huge submission threat, but one you have to take seriously. For Tate, I, I want to see if she gets taken down. How urgently does she get back up, number one? Number two, if she decides to fight on the floor, is she hunting for sweeps? Is she hunting for some kind of balance disruption? Is she framing to switch her hips underneath? Like, what is she doing in those circumstances to match what Vieira is doing on top? But this is going to be an interesting one. And then you have to sort of ask, like, who's the more physical of the two Vieira? Pretty physical, but not, like, necessarily overwhelmingly so. It kind of depends on what, what she's going to give you that day. Um, but that's what it comes down to for me. Uh, by the way, the odds makers, our friends over at, let's see here, our friends over at Caesar Sportsbook, they've got it as a, a pick them. Minus 110 to minus 110. That's it. There are some folks, let me look down the line, some other odds makers. No, every single odds makers from DraftKings, BetMGM, Caesars, BetRivers, FanDuel, PointsBet, Unibet, Bet365, BetWave5D, and others, they all have it. To various numbers, but they all have it as a pick'em. Can you believe that? Unbelievable. All have it as a pick'em. To me, this is a question about is Misha Tate really back? If you can beat the Ketlin Vieras of the world, you are definitely really back. If you're not, or rather, I should say, if you can't beat Vieira, it doesn't mean that another one or two fights don't put you there, but it does mean that you can't really say you can contend for a title in this weight class like you're a championship level fighter in this weight class you have to get past the Kitlin Vieira's. Now one sort of note the Viera Kunitskaya fight because that's the last one that Viera had she's coming off of a loss. The scoring in that one is a little bit weird. Most media if you go out to MMA decision decision, excuse me, they had it for Viera over Kunitskaya. She had mount I think in the first and third round, so she had it in the third and she had the back in the third. And somehow lost two of the rounds. Now, one of the rounds, I think uh, she deserved to. Or maybe it was the second. But, uh, or at least it was pretty close where you could have given it to this guy without too much issue. But the first and the third looked pretty clean. Um, so there is a little bit of controversy there. Like maybe she should be riding a two-fight win streak, not being one and two in her last three. When you really begin to think about it. Plus, one other note, she's strong in certain grappling positions. Vieira scoring a head and arm triangle on Sarah McMahon cross-body. You know, usually when you score a head and arm triangle, you want to have your body on the same side as the choke, right? You want to be o- over here, uh, where if their body is here, the head is wrapped, that kind of a thing. She's able to do it uh, from the other side of the body. The strongest I've ever seen was when Brian Foster got hit with a head and arm triangle inside of his own guard by Rick Storey, which is just absolute Herculean levels of strength. But to be able to do it cross-body, you still got to be strong as shit. I've seen a lot of Vaughn flues from that position, but not so many head and arm triangles, and she hit it from there. Pretty, pretty commendable stuff. All right, we go to our co-main event on this card, if we can. Co-main event is highly interesting. Michael Chiesa taking on Sean Brady. Easily the biggest fight of Sean Brady's career. Easily one of the more important fights of Michael Chiesa's career. Why? Michael Chiesa was on a hell of a run, since switching to welterweight. So he goes to welterweight after losing to Pettis all the way back in 2018. He beat Carlos Condit in his first fight at welterweight. Then he beat Diego Sanchez. And you might say, okay, well, those guys weren't like at their best when he fought them. Fair enough. But then he beats Rafael dos Anjos. And then he beat Neil Magney. Now, Dos Anjos and Magny are not the very best they have at welterweight, but those are very, very legitimate opponents. You know, do you get the best out of Dos Anjos at 155 or 170? Certainly, I would argue 155. But nevertheless, dude, he's not a chump. Black belt himself, as experienced as they come, Neil Magny, cardio... That just goes on for days and has a well-rounded skill set. I think that's putting it mildly, and he got past both of them. But then against Vicente Luque, it just kind of all came apart, and he gets subbed via Dars choke at 3:25 of the first round. Now, as we said, you lost to Luque, big deal, right? Luque is the man, and also his darts choke is one of his more prominent weapons that he uses all the time against high-level guys. You know, no shame in losing to him, but. It really kind of derailed the progress of Michael Chiesa, who's trying to get out of 155 and go to 170 because he wanted to maximize his opportunity, which, by the way, I think making that call was the right one. Here he finds himself against Sean Brady, and this is why it's interesting. So I went back and I watched Sean Brady, by the way, undefeated out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I went back and I looked at his debut in the UFC, which was against Court McGee. Let me pull up the numbers on that, if I might, uh, for Sean Brady. Now, in that fight... Court McGee actually landed a little bit less but threw a lot more, but the big key was Brady got two of three takedowns and he stuffed all six of McGee's. Still, he got outstruck a bit in the third round and was getting outstruck to some degree as well um, in the second round, although in the first round he dominated pretty closely. What I'm trying to say is that 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 judging was a little bit, could have gone potentially to Court McGee. Uh But that's just not really relevant for Michael Chiesa. Chiesa does have the ability to use strikes to kill the clock, to keep his opponents off of him, and I think to close distance and get a takedown. It has utility. Striking for him is a utilitarian approach. But when it comes to the other parts of his game, that's where he wins or he loses. Like, do you really think... That Michael Chiesa wants to spend three rounds striking with Sean Brady absent all other possibilities. Well, if you take them away, I guess he has to. But what I mean is, like, if he has any choice, why would he go that way? Listen to these numbers. We've gone over them before on Wednesday, but if you're just joining us, they're worth going over today. Let's pull the graphic up if we can, uh, gaff, g- graphic number two. I want you to look at some of these numbers. If you can't see them, I'll, I'll read them to you. Michael Kiesa's average fight time, less than 10 minutes. Keep that in mind. Sean Brady, a little bit longer. Sean is going to be shorter. Should be noted by about three inches. Um, have a little bit of a less of a reach advantage, although we'll see because I tend to think he looks longer on, on tape in terms of the reach of his strikes, but we'll have to see how that plays out. You are going to have an open stance here. Sean Brady will switch. Michael Kiesa might, I don't know, but you will have an open stance, Orthodox versus Southpaw. But look at these striking numbers. Strikes landed per minute for Kiesa, 187 for Sean Brady, 4.72 on the feet, dude. He's going to tear Michael Kiesa up. He's got great inside leg kicks, outside leg kicks. He constantly is mixing it up. He has a great reactionary left hook. From the striking accuracy, fifty-five percent of what Sean Brady throws lands. Uh, he does take more damage, but he's also you know putting himself more in fire to do that. Michael Chiesa doesn't take hardly any damage. Keep that in mind. One point seven two, and then striking defense, fifty-four percent for Michael Chiesa, which is good. Sixty-three percent for Sean Brady, which is extremely high. Uh, grappling 3.6.2, 3.62 I should say, takedowns for Michael Chiesa per fifteen minutes. for Sean Brady. Either one of those is high. It's extremely high for Michael Chiesa. Takedown accuracy, 53% to 60. Takedown defense, 68% to 100. And their submission averages are about the same. Once they get the fight to the ground, their games look pretty similar, actually. Their games look really similar. It's chest-to-chest, arm, uh, sort of wrapping the head scenario, usually leaning off to a side, usually for half guard, and the guys are hunting various either arms, positional advancement, knee cut passes, mount, back if you provide it, that sort of a thing. So on the ground, I don't know who's going to have the edge. Maybe Kiesa because he's done it against better opposition. But they look pretty similar. I will also point out, while Michael Kiesa has looked well-muscled at 170, Sean Brady looks like he's been in the weight room too. That is going to be an interesting ground battle. I really want to see who ends up winning there because if you're Sean Brady, your operative condition, I'm not saying he can't win on the floor. In fact, heading into this contest, he beat Jake Matthews on the floor pretty easily. It wasn't very hard for him, either in getting the takedown or in keeping it and doing damage on top. But that's a different level, I think, than what Michael Chiesa brings to the to the game. So if... Sean Brady finds himself there. It's hardly a walk in the park for Michael Chiesa, at least we think on paper. But as you can see, the disparity in this one is just overwhelming. There is no way Michael Chiesa is going to want to stand for three rounds opposite Sean Brady. Sean Brady can punch. He's got good striking. He's got good lateral movement. He is fast for this weight class. Dude, folks, let me explain something to you. He is undefeated for a reason. Yes, the Court McGee fight was close, but that was his UFC debut. His UFC debut was Court McGee. And he still stuffed every takedown that that guy had to offer, especially along the fence line. What kind of takedowns does Michael Chiesa typically go for? He's got a pretty wide array. He's got a pretty wide array. But I would say body locks and wrestling from fence position are commonly going to be the things he goes to. Right? He's going to commonly look for body lock takedowns. He's going to commonly look for... um, Uh, along the fence line getting behind an opponent he's gonna look to drag out limbs like uh uh, not foot sweeps but like putting his leg and hooking it like an outside trip that's the kind of thing I think you're gonna try and see for my kids home and she's screaming so you guys know the drill we ain't new to this we're true to this um so what you're looking for is for Sean Brady he might invite he he might invite The takedown because he might like his chances there, but I think for Sean Brady he's going to want to establish a good jab. I do think leg kicking will be part, but he's going to have to do it whether it's far below the knee, so it's going to have to be calf kicking, uh, probably in totality, because a guy like Michael Chiesa is going to be looking to grab that and probably on heightened alert to grab that. So for Sean Brady. It's going to be distance. It's going to be lateral movement. It's going to be in and out. It's going to be pumping the jab, that kind of a thing. And if it goes to the mat, it's really just who can maintain top control, I think. Both guys are going to be nimble underneath. They're going to know how to get underneath an opponent and to elevate and then to move and then to reposition them. That's going to be a thing that's common too. But I also think both of them have just lights out, top control to potentially stop some of that. And let me read you some of these. Uh, We have results here from a chat that's in the... The, the YouTube uh, page right now. So people are asked to vote who they think is going to win the main event. They've got 59% for Tate in the main event. And they've got just 53% for Kiesa in the co-main event. I have to tell you, man, this is either going to be the the, the arrival of Sean Brady into the upper echelon of the welterweight rankings, or this is going to be Michael Chiesa getting back on track. What I will say, though, is if you go back to Sean Brady and you look at his last five, or he's only had four fights in UFC, this is only his fifth fight in UFC for Sean Brady. He's got wins over McGee, uh, Nardiev, uh, Aguilera, and then Matthews. Chiesa is a different level, just no absolute denying it. But what I wanted to say was from the McGee fight to the Jake Matthews fight, you can see a lot of things getting cleaned up, tons of just sort of smoothness about how he wants to approach various techniques and various tactical strategies, just getting really, really sharpened, dialed in. He did get hit with a punch by Jake Matthews early in the first, but then immediately just it was a bit of a flash knockdown, and then used that to transition right into a takedown, got it, and won that round, no problem. So, like even when he can be touched, which you would imagine Kiesa is not like the biggest threat for. He still does really well. A highly intriguing contest. Man, this is a real, for, for Michael Chiesa, they gave him an undefeated guy. You had four fights in the UFC to get all the jitters out of you, to all that out of you. He was supposed to fight Kevin Lee. It all fell through. And now he finds himself against Michael Chiesa. Chiesa has no easy task here. I know a lot of fans probably don't know who Sean Brady is, can't really remember his fights, might not have fight paths to go and look at what you may have missed. Okay, I understand it. And by the way, the odds makers on this one, too. Let's see where they're at. Our friends over at Caesars have Sean Brady as the favorite at minus 180 at Kiesa, plus 155. I'm not sure I agree with that, to be honest with you. I think I might lean a little bit towards Kiesa just by virtue of what kind of work he has done against what kind of opposition, right? But at the same time, um, it, it gives you a sense about why Sean Brady is highly regarded and what kind of chances the odds makers think here. But to me, that's a pick'em as well. In your main and your co-main for UFC this weekend, you both have, in my judgment, either outright pick'ems or something pretty close to and approximating that. One other note about Kitlin Vieira underneath that I didn't mention, I just want to forget before we move on from UFC. Underneath, when she frames, sometimes she doesn't look for the armbar. She frames to twist her head underneath her opponent so she can attack legs. The knee bars aren't very close. The heel hooks are not very close. But she now changes the scramble. She got ended up in a mount accidentally against Kunitskaya and then brought her feet in front. Not to pull Kunitskaya back down, but to scoot her head out behind and then look for some kind of other transition from there. She's actually pretty good at that. It's going to force Tate, even if she gets the takedown to be quite nimble on top and really shut down any kind of mobile passing such as it exists all right real quick note one quick note and we have some uh we have one more graphic for it for the adrian yanez fight i mentioned i wanted to say something about it whoops let me go back here real quick you can see it here he's taking on davy grant let me pull up my number so i can read them better on my end of things just real quickly look at the average fight time for Adrian Yanez 5 minutes and 16 seconds this guy's barely lasting a round in there with his opponents win or lose and by the way he's undefeated in the UFC with wins over Huang Rodriguez Lopez and then Costa in his last fight they're about the same height obviously the same weight uh, reach is about the same against Davy Grant but you look at the look at the striking numbers even Davy Grant's striking numbers at 5. Point, excuse me 4.21 Strikes landed per minute versus the 3.25 strikes absorbed. That's A, a a positive differential, and B, pretty high. Look at what it is for Yanez, 6.13. But here are the parts that give you a little bit of pause. Accuracy is just 38. Now, some of that he's using to paw. So I can understand why it would be a little bit lower, but he does throw a lot of, let's say, non-landing volume. And strikes absorbed, 4.8. Now, he was in and has been in a few gunfights that he won but he does take a little bit of damage. So what I have noticed on tape, and you can see the takedowns, not really relevant for Yanez. They do tend to be relevant for Davey Grant. Um, the takedown accuracy for Yanez is zero because he's never tried 100 because he has exceeded five of those over the course of his UFC career. That's how they they wait for you to, have to at least five of those, I think. And then a the takedown defense, 60%. I don't think that's going to be relevant for uh, Yanez in terms of what his takedown accuracy is going to look like in this one, although one never knows for sure. Bit of a, you know, a little bit unfair to say striker versus grappler. I do think that the far better striker of the two is Yanez, but I do think the better, at least the more concerted grappler, is going to be Davy Grant of the two. But dude, Yanez, when he is dealing, when he is out there flowing, da 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 da, da just sort of rhythm striking out there, he is a handful. Fantastic body work. His left hook to the liver is a thing of beauty. He's not necessarily a headhunter, although sometimes he can get into those positions. But when he is, again, when he is dealing, he is going every which direction, every which way he will stand in the pocket. which you want to see from Yanez, two things. One, can he stop the takedown enough to keep the game where his game comes to life, right? And then number two, can he, if he is able to stop the takedown, what does his defense look like? He's had a big problem with head movement. Head just kind of stays there because he's just dealing in the pocket, and then he kind of gets hit and then just deals with it. Now, at you know, if you're born in 1993 and you're a pretty young guy, you can probably get away with it. Uh, but over time, that, of course, will not be the case, and it may not be even the case in a fight like this. So Yanez, top prospect, great fight, love the challenge. He should. I think, what, how do the odds makers have this one as well? Yeah, they've got Yanez as a pretty substantial favorite over at Caesar Sportsbook. They got him at a minus three hundred and ten to a Davy Grant plus two hundred and fifty. Uh, but either way, um, I would expect um, I would expect Yanez to win. I would expect Yanez to win. But let's see how he looks. I really want to see the head movement. I really want to see the takedown defense. Other great fights on the card, as we mentioned, Hani Yaya is back. Joanne Calderwood, now known as uh, Joanne Wood, is on this card, taking on Tyler. Um, or Taila, I don't know how you pronounce it, Santos. Um, don't have a lot to say about that. We'll have to see how it goes. Interestingly, Caesar Sportsbook has no odds on that fight, but other places have Calderwood as a pretty substantial underdog. So um, she has her work cut out for her there. So that's the UFC card, which, by the I way, I, I believe, by the way, starts. Let me just make sure I get this right. I believe it has a 6 p.m. main card start time. Um, Prelims start at 3 p.m. Eastern, yes, so your main card will be at 6. This will air on ESPN+. All right, let's transition. Boxing. Now, preamble here very quickly. BC, before he went on vacation, put out a video about this on our YouTube channel to get you ready for this fight. Bud Crawford taking on Sean Porter. Terrence Crawford, they they all call him Bud. Um, a, a phenomenal fight uh, for the uh, welterweight division. You have Terrence Crawford, who this week has been kind of bellyaching a little bit that he hasn't gotten the pound-for-pound recognition that Canelo has gotten. I think at this point, the distance between them is a little bit more understandable given that Canelo has gone up in the weight that he... Well, you know, 147 is up a weight class in many ways for Crawford. But in the way in which he went and sort of undisputedly grabbed all the titles there and, and everything, he's done four-weight world-class champion. I think Crawford's just three... Just three, still, you know what I'm saying. We're comparing pound for pound best, so I I don't think the argument is as um, they're not as close as he wants to pretend that they are. But what I would say is, like, someone asked me today, like, what this fight represents, like, what's it about? I have my view on it, but we, I want to hear from BC. So I have three clips from him. First, we're going to hear about what he thinks makes Crawford special and what he's going to do. Porter, same thing, and then. Ultimately, why the fight matters. Here's a snippet from the video. Let's hear from BC. I did because who are these guys if you don't know? Well, Terrence
2: Bud Crawford can absolutely do it all. He's thin and wiry, he could outbox you from the outside with that incredible reach, but it's the, his ability and his love. For getting dirty and getting in there and fighting, he has an incredible backbone. He's a true uh G underneath that. He's a gangster in there. If you come to, and, and make him fight, oh, oh, he'll fight. He'll fight. He can knock you out with shots you don't see coming. He, you know, is he a one-punch knock artist? Not necessarily, although he's finished guys to the body. But he hits you with those stiff, fast, hard shots that you don't see coming. He can fight any style. He can switch stances. He's a genius in there. He really has the feel. Even at 34, yeah, maybe uh, a little bit too long down the road without facing the super elite because of boxing's politics. But Terence Crawford has shown us up to this point that he is a truly special, all-time great fighter. And if he can finish his career fighting the big names that, that that he should, you know, he has a chance to be the the Ray Leonard of this era, and and that's huge praise. But this kid is something next level different.
0: So I'll leave it up to BC to let us know whether or not he thinks that Crawford can end up becoming the Ray Leonard of this era. That is a level of judgment that requires a degree of boxing history and understanding I don't have. So I'm not going to weigh into those claims. But I have watched tons of tape on Bud Crawford. Everything BC just said about him is true. He is a genius. Uh, His skill is extraordinary. And this is a very, very, very easy way... To make this claim to you, all you have to do is go, you can see it on YouTube right now, look up his fight, Terrence Crawford taking on Kell Brook. And you can pick a number of other ones if you want to, but it's relatively recent. You can go check that out. I want you to go and look at the right hand from Bud Crawford that ultimately seals the deal. First of all, if you're an MMA fan, here's why you might like Bud Crawford. switches stances all the time, all the time. He can go back and forth. He can fight offensively as well as defensively. He doesn't have huge gaping differences between his defense in either stance. He is excellent in either of them. He is a full-on tactician and to the highest order. And in that Kell Brook fight, which, you know, Kell Brook was overmatched. We're not saying that he this was like the very best guy he could have fought. But what we are saying is I want you to go and look at the right hand as you see Bud Crawford pawing with him and he waits for the left hook to come around from Kelbrook and then times a right hand over the top of it. Ladies and gentlemen, I can only tell you especially if you're an American. If you're a European you may not understand this, but what makes understand something about the NFL. I always make this claim. The NFL, the National Football League has 32 teams, okay? They can't find 32 good quarterbacks that position is so hard to play at least play well anyway they can find serviceable quarterbacks how many good quarterbacks are there 15 if that and even that might be a high number probably 10 or less and like truly elite just five like that there's hardly any of them that position is that hard to play I want you to think of like you know absent the all the crazy politics stuff, but like the windows that Aaron Rodgers can throw in, the windows that Tom Brady can throw in, these little moments where they can find balls that have been slung over the shoulder to a wide receiver or whoever throwing to, these little windows of of, of uh, the defense nearly getting their hands on it, and it sails right through. These are only the throws that a handful of guys in that chosen profession could even dream of pulling off, much less actually do it. Bud Crawford is like that. He can find the narrowest little window of time where there's this very, very brief moment where all of the safety mechanisms that keeps the bank vault closed, there's a little window tiniest most people won't even see it much less be able to take advantage of it dude he sees all of them and he knows exactly when to throw that right hand he threw on Kell Brook is a they should have that fucking thing on an NFT in the Louvre I mean it is in I I have watched that that might like when I try to think about like singularly impressive punches not that Kell Brook was like the toughest opponent per se although he's not some scrub either but the, the timing it takes to land a punch like that is only capable from the most exquisite operator there is. And he has it. Folks, we are talking about someone who can thread the tiniest of needle who, uh, needles, who can just wow you with technical ability. That is Bud Crawford. He is in this fight in every way, technically, in my judgment anyway, technically superior to sean porter so you might be asking well what does sean porter really have in this fight brian campbell is going to tell us well who is sean porter you know he's a little bit more
2: blue collar he's won titles in two divisions crawford's won titles in three divisions but porter's done most of his work at at 147 pounds and he's been a champion two different times and he always faces the best but the key to who porter is is today at 34 is he has evolved his style so incredibly well. He used to be sort of a, a running back in the wrong sport, and he'd come at you uh, with full fury, but he's ironed that out. He's added footwork, feints, punches from different angles. He's very unpredictable in there. So when you get a guy who who you don't know what you're going to see out of him, some hybrid of multiple styles, and you put him in there with a truly elite guy in Crawford who can fight against every style, and can employ any style, you're going to see fireworks. You're going to see extreme skill. You're going to see adjustments, drama, flows uh, and ebbs, and all that great stuff.
0: There you have it. Sean Porter is a Tasmanian devil, high work rate, constant pressure, forcing opponents into uncomfortable rhythms. Where what he does is he wants you to do something, either back up or throw or cover, like whatever he wants you to do. And then as soon as you do it, he's trying to pile on offense behind it in quick succession. He wants you to play chess with him while he plays speed chess with him. Here's the problem that I think he's up against personally. While everything BC said about him is correct, and certainly BC will know him far better than I ever could, what I want you to pay attention to, and you can go watch this too, the whole fight is free on YouTube. You can go see Porter take on Errol Spence. Errol Spence, you might know, sort of the other dominant figure in this division outside of Bud Crawford. And what Spence did was, first of all, have a lot of trouble with Sean Porter. Sean Porter gave him a good fight. I think he only lost that, Sean Porter did, by split decision, number one. I could be wrong. You can dead wrong me if I'm wrong on that, but I believe that's correct. But the other part is this, is that over time, what you saw from Spence was he was able to back up just a little bit. And as the distance closing of Porter became, not more reckless, but as he began to just sort of naturally get a little bit more comfortable with it, Spence actually made it uncomfortable over time. He was using it to catch Porter coming in constantly. You know, I don't know exactly who's going to win in a fight between Spence and Crawford. It's a big debate. You could pick whatever side you want. But I do have the feeling that if Spence is the kind of guy who can find those windows in those moments, it's hard for me to understand why Bud Crawford couldn't. Right? It's not to say that the fight will go the same. Not to say that the fight will be in every way identical. It's not to say that there's no drama or no intrigue. Quite the opposite. This is a a good name. By the way, only happening because the sanctioning body ordered it. This is a fight that is very tough for Crawford, but you just have to imagine a guy with that kind of skill level, right? That elite quarterback who can throw in the tiniest of windows. If that guy shows up on Saturday night, all of the grit and the horsepower and the volume and the and the and the, the in your face style of Porter, while formidable, would it really be enough? One final thought here from BC. He told you what made Crawford good. He told you what made Porter good. Here's what he thinks makes the fight ultimately kind of special.
2: It's two of the best fighters in the world. This welterweight division in the modern era is the sex division. It's the money division. We love heavyweights. Heavyweight's the gateway drug for casuals. But the welterweight fighters pay the bills. They're the pay-per-view stars. And Terrence Crawford is, is no worse the number four pound for pound, you could see him as high as number one, even with Canelo's greatness. I've got him at number three right now, but I've had him as high as two. He he belongs there. And the only question uh, really coming in is, is, you know, has he fought enough truly elite guys to deserve that? Well, some of the pound for pound, you know, voting and judging is done on the eye test. It just is. And Terrence Crawford is right there. And Sean Porter has been lingering around that 10 to 20 spot in the pound for pound. He's pound for pound level ability. Sometimes he loses the big fights because he's just so willing to take them all on. But you've got two of the best welterweights in this, you know, bloated, amazing era at 147 pounds coming together for Crawford's title.
0: And there you have it. I can't say it much better than BC. You saw the odds there as well. Let me give you the most current ones as they stand right now. If I can find Jesus, this site is, oh, here we go. So our friends over at uh, William Hill have Crawford. at 700 still Sean Porter at plus five. Not a ton of movement should be as entertaining as it can be. As long as it lasts, it probably will. In fact, go the distance a, a fantastic fight. In a marquee division with a top pound for pound guy taking on a well respected risk taking guy in Sean Porter. You know, listen, if you're an MMA fan, I understand that maybe boxing's not for you, but if you are an MMA fan and you're curious about other forms of elite greatness in combat sports, Bud Crawford is appointment viewing. He is absolutely appointment viewing. And Sean Porter, capable of winning this, but certainly enough of an uphill climb. Look for Bud Crawford to make those throws in the littlest of windows. He is an absolute breathtaker when it comes to that. All right. Let's go to some, just some news and notes here for the weekend. Topic number three. I don't have a whole lot to say about some of the boxing news and notes. We'll show you some multimedia here in just a second. Folks have been asking about the Demetrius Andre fight as he takes on um, uh, Quigley. Here on DAZN, I'm trying to get the exact same start time. Yes, it'll be 8 p.m. as he takes on, uh, I think, Peter Quigley. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say about this. Eddie Hearn has made Demetrius Andrade out to be the most avoided boxer in the game. He might That might be true in the sense that the fights he's looking for routinely fall through and that folks don't necessarily want to fight him. He's an awkward southpaw. He's not a big name we all know when you try to go top rank to the zone or pbc to top rank or whatever things can get a little bit difficult but um you know excuse me what am i saying peter quigley peter quigley jason quigley i apologize jason quigley is you know uh, from what i can tell on the tape um a, a, a decent challenge a good one to beat yours, Andre, uh, they call him boo boo for all of the folks that are avoiding him and you understand it doesn't necessarily wow folks. Can sometimes coast a little bit in fights? Or coasts, Yeah, can coast a little bit in fights sometimes, especially when he's ahead. But more recently, maybe looks like he's shown some signs of pressing on the gas a little bit when so he did it in a fight in 2020. He kind of went for it when he didn't necessarily have to. We'll see if he can do that here. He should do that here. Because he's the guy kind of standing on the outside of this division, and he wants a shot at Canelo, or maybe the Charlos, or maybe whoever he can reasonably get. Um for the middleweight title. And by the way, the WBO middleweight titles is on, on the line for this one. But, you know, not a huge fight. This is the one that I wanted to show you, a little piece of MMA news and nuggets if I can. So yesterday, the WBC uh, council had a meeting to at least set the groundwork for a potential, well, lots of things. But in part of that meeting, one of it, the items on the list was, you know, do we want to see if we can set the ground rules and get things going for a potential meeting between Ilunga Makabu the cruiserweight champion for WBC, and Canelo Alvarez. Now, you might recall, A, I had pissed on this idea, thinking it was totally insane, and then it turns out that that's exactly what Canelo and his team want to do. Beyond that, they actually met up in person yesterday. Show this video here, Gaff. Now, here is my read on this. Look at this video here. Now, if you're watching, or rather, I should say, if you're listening on the audio podcast, I can't help you here. But you can see them here. They look to be quite, you know, chummy. Canelo on the left in a nice suit. You've got uh, Macabu wearing a jacket that's got his belt on it. They're they're saying nice things to each other. I don't expect this to be like the plant fight where you know, there's animosity involved. They're they're very very kind. Here's my read on this. Um, go go back one more time. Just keep rolling here, if you would, Gaff. Just look at this video here. Makabu doesn't look that much bigger. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's clearly the bigger of the two. Clearly of the bigger of the two by a lot. But he doesn't look insanely bigger. He doesn't look like in your mind what you would imagine a cruiserweight to look like relative to what Canelo looked like. Plant, for example, granted, is smaller, but you know, taller, just kind of towered over Canelo. We know that Maccabo is shorter in stature. I don't have his measurements right in front of me in terms of his height. Obviously, his weight would be around 200, maybe the 190 if they end up pushing the whole thing back. But here's why this thing stuck out to me. I was like, well, if Canelo and his team are looking for a fight like this, you know, they're daring to be great. Um, they're probably going to be selective about who they pick. You know, they're going to want the right kind of fight when they go to these extraordinary weight classes, like a 175. They went to Kovalev, and Kovalev was a little bit on the downswing. And in this case, Makabu, I don't know if he's on the downswing, but you can see from stature, doesn't quite have the same build as many of the other potential cruiserweights he could face. But, you know, this is why Canelo and his team are so smart. Now, I have to tell you, like, the Makabu fight, again, I pissed on it to begin with, and I was interested in it by virtue of what Canelo was trying, but I was like, okay, like, you know, this seems like a bridge too far. Now, when you look at him. I mean, don't get me wrong, I still have questions about like what happens when Makabu lands on him. A guy like Canelo Alvarez, never been down on the canvas after 60-plus fights or whatever it is. Never never took, taken a knee, never been sat, not even a flash knockdown, nothing. How are his punches going to land? And you can see Canelo, I've been skeptical of his power carrying up to 168, but then he stopped Kovalev. Now, granted, he was losing, to, well, on the cards, I think Kovalev was winning heading into that 11th round. But, you know, Canelo's power carries late. He stopped Caleb Plant in the 11th. He stopped Kovalev in the 11th. i got to say, I'm actually really intrigued by this fight, and I think it might be really competitive. I don't know if that's crazy to say or not. One more time, if you can, Gaff. One more time, just put the the video up on the screen. I I, I know they're wearing clothes. They're not, like, you know, it's not like a a shirt off, face off on weigh-in day. There's a lot that's not clear. Again, Mukabu, clearly the bigger guy it's not a claim that like they're I'm not telling you they're the same. You can see for yourself and make your own judgment. But does he look so big that a win by Canelo seems impossible or a bridge too far or a hill too steep to climb? Based just on how they look, he does not seem that way. Of course, he's a hard-hitting cruiserweight himself. He can punch, he can throw. He can probably take the punches Canelo gives. I got to say I'm super intrigued by that. Timothy Bradley believes that this is not the fight for Canelo to get the fans on his side, to really etch his name in history, that there are some other fights he should go to. Certainly, Timothy Bradley's going to know boxing history and what boxing audiences want probably a lot better than I do. I will say, though, having seen this and just coming off of the Caleb Plant experience with Canelo, I'm pretty intrigued. I'm pretty intrigued. I I saw that yesterday, and for some reason I thought... I knew that Mukabu was short for a cruiserweight, but I thought that he would just look like a much more of a hulking presence next to Canelo, at least from that. From that, we'll see what happens on weigh-in day. But at least from that, he didn't look that way to me. But of course, what weight would Canelo be at in order to keep his speed, yet still be get close to the limit and not to be too heavily outsized? I guess we'll have to see when that comes around. All right, last but not least, we have some MMA news and notes and we've got great uh, multimedia here with you as well. Let's see. I've got one, two, uh, four stories for you. First, this is real simple. Eric Nixick, the head coach over at Extreme Couture, posted this picture. I shared it on social media. Rico Verhoeven, who is the glory heavyweight champion, is training with Francis Ngannou ahead of his fight opposite Cyril Gañ. They brought him into the camp. So you've got the UFC heavyweight champion of the world, Training with the Glory heavyweight champion of the world. Listen, man, (laughs) you know, training partners just don't come a whole lot better than that. Here's what I will say, though, and I'll temper things a little bit. Dude, how good is Rico Verhoeven? He is the face of heavyweight kickboxing today and has been for some time. I I met him in, I want to say 2014 uh, in Newport News when Glory was down there. And briefly, I worked for them earlier on for Spike TV anyway. And uh, I met him, the nicest guy, uh, you know, absolute sportsman in every way. Huge mitts on him, too, by the way. Uh, There's no doubt in my mind that Verhoeven is going to be a great training partner for Francis in any number of different respects. The one thing I will say, though, is the way in which Gon strikes in MMA is pretty distinct from how Verhoeven fights in kickboxing. So what Verhoeven is going to have to do is, like, could Verhoeven fight in the way that he normally fights up the level of a guy like Francis? No doubt about it. There's just no denying he can be only beneficial. On the other hand, on the other hand, what you're going to need, and I'm sure other coaches know this, but what you're going to need opposite Gahn is someone who can mimic what he does specifically. You know, uh, I would imagine Verhoeven can do a pretty good job of that, but Verhoeven is going to have to do something, or Verhoeven, um, but he's going to have to do something that I'm going to say he normally doesn't do necessarily a lot of, if they want someone who can give them looks like what Cyril GaN does. So a, a, a hell of a development. Super interesting. Not saying there's no value. There's a ton of value. How much specific value as it relates to Ghosn remains to be seen. Uh, how about this? Justin Gaethje and Islam Makhachev having a war of words. Obviously in the media and even on social media. Justin Gaethje believes after beating Michael Chandler UFC 268 that he is deserving of a UFC lightweight title shot against the winner of Dustin Poirier and Charles Oliveira. But Islam Makachev, fresh off his win over Dan Hooker, believes he is also entitled to a title shot. So Islam Makachev took to social media. I believe we have the, the, uh, the tweet here. Them sitting next to each other. This was at a Dominance MMA, um, I think, media event. And it says, so we'll go to war. Folks, I got to tell you, I don't know what the UFC is going to do. Maybe they'll give the title shot to Gaethje. Maybe they'll give it to Makachev. But I wouldn't mind a Gaethje versus Makachev winner takes all fight. All right? by itself the fight would be good. Like you would just want to see it. Maybe that wouldn't be your number one choice. Maybe your number one choice would be you want to see Gaethje fight for that title, or conversely Makachev. Right? Imagine we can't get that for whatever reason. We can't get that. Would you? Cry about a Gaethje versus Makachev fight. Why would you? Here you have for Makachev opposite Gaethje. Clearly the best fighter he's ever faced. If he gets the win at that point, the case number one, you're going to get resolution with this about who gets the title shot, no matter what, right? Two, if Makachev ends up beating Gaethje, I mean, what would that tell you about Makachev's ability? Cause you know, are you going to win that on the feet? maybe he could win on the feet, but you would imagine his best chance would be on the ground. Well, everyone not named Habib Nurmagomedov hasn't had a whole lot of success trying that, but Makachev, sort of coming from the same part of the world, trading partners with Habib, same similar styles of martial arts, many, many differences, but many similarities to their games as well. Can he do that? Conversely, if you're Gaethje, I would say this. Listen, I think a lot of folks are already ready to see him back in the title shot beating Michael Chandler. I think... um, for many, is a good way to get there. I'll argue and say I don't think it's enough personally. I'd like to see something else. The Makachev fight solves that completely. You beat a, a, a class opponent like him, and your case is you know, easy to to figure out as well. Plus, how much of a wrestling deficiency does Justin Gaethje have? Is, is it not just Habib that was able to get him down, but maybe a lot of these guys from that Sambo kind of wrestling style that 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 they have? Is there more to the Smash Factory thing than just what Habib was able to do? Like how far apart are Habib and Makachev in ability, right? Because when Habib fought Justin, Justin was the 2.0 version already. If Makachev fights him, he's getting the 2.0 version as well. And it's in pretty close proximity, it would give you a sense of what the gap, what the actual gap is in ability between Habib and between Makachev, depending on how things go, right? So very interesting uh, kind of test. By the way, Dustin Poirier t- telling Ariel Hawani, I believe in the MMA Hour, quote, maybe Islam needs to fight one more top contender and then he's next. I don't know, maybe Gaethje should fight Islam. That way, settle it. That's the beautiful thing about fighting, right? You can just fight it out. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Again, I'm not telling you that I... I, I, Would you hate to see Gaethje in a title shot? No. Makachev? Of course not. (coughs) But them fighting each other? That might be the best option of them all. Um, Okay. Next item. I love this. Let me just show you this first before we get into anything else. So Islam Makachev... Excuse me. What am I saying? Um, Hamzat Shemaev is having a grappling match this weekend with Jack Hermanson. So there you go on the screen. They had a weigh-in. It's all for fun. They're not fighting. Just a grappling match if you're wondering how like, they're not in the UFC. Um, They're all just hanging out. It might even be for charity. Who the hell knows? But there you can see Jack Hermanson, full-on middleweight, right? This is not a welterweight. Here comes Makachev. He steps on the scale. Now, he's got shoes on, and Hermanson doesn't. But watch when they face off, dude. Even without the shoes, they're probably the same size. Dude, look at Makachev. What am I saying? Look at Chemayev. Look at the size of this ogre. <laughs> he's huge. He's huge. I, I know he's got sh- uh, the shoes on. Uh, okay, that's giving him a bit of a boost. But still, I mean, my Lord, folks. Look at the size of this man at 185 pounds or whatever the contracted weight is here. I'm saying ne- this way. Next to a middleweight opponent. UFC middleweight opponent blown away by this. I cannot believe the size. I won't say disparity, but the, the the evenness. And I know, of course, oh, he's fought at 185. Look, we already know this, right? But Hermanson's like a big middleweight. And look how Chemaev matches up with him. It's ridiculous. Dude, I can't wait to see more of this guy. I, I still don't know exactly how far he's going to go. I don't know that anybody really does. But every time you see him, you just get filled with like what is possible here and it usually wildly exceeds whatever even is the 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 most generous version of reality you could imagine. Can't wait to see it. Now, why do I bring Hamz out up? Well, Gilbert Burns says he needs that Chmayev does <coughs> one more fight. Quote. I don't think I'll fight him after uh, excuse me. I don't think I'll I don't think I'll fight him while he's ranked at number 10, said Burns. I think he'll fight one more time and after winning against a top 5 or top 6 welterweight, Getting closer to the top five, I'd fight him no problem at all. Top ten, I wouldn't fight him, but that's me fighting against myself. Top ten doesn't make sense, but I want to fight, so it's complicated. Folks, I'll say this. The UFC has three problems at welterweight. One is, who gets a shot against um, Kamara Usman? What do you do with Leon Edwards? And what do you do with Hamzat Shemaev? Gilbert Burns can solve one of those problems, but not both. Or, or uh, Yeah, because you can't give him a title shot right away. He just lost it. I know he got a rebound, but he just lost it. Now, I know that Edwards and Usman are in talks for a fight, potentially in the new year, but that's not a given yet. And also, Usman already beat him. And so you're just trying to figure out what to do here. You could do Burns versus Edwards, or you could do Burns versus Chimaev. You can't do both. I'll say this. I know Burns doesn't want to do it because he doesn't want to go backwards, and I completely get it. But I would love to see Burns versus Shemayev. One, while Edwards... Does have a loss to Usman. He has not had a title shot. I would like to see him get one. Number two. Dude. You want to talk about. I mean. Put up or shut up time. For Hamzat Chemaev. Against Gilbert Burns. That's what that is. Because you got a guy in Gilbert Burns who is. I, in the gi. A no bullshit world champion black belt in jiu-jitsu. Durino on the jiu-jitsu level is as... I mean, he, obviously not now. He couldn't go and win the Mundials this year. But when he was competing in that, was the best in his division in his day in pure jiu-jitsu. You can see what he can do in MMA. He's been quite the talent. And uh, you know his move to 170 has been revelatory for him, right? We don't really know the full, full, full upside of Chumayev. It could be the case that we go in there and... Burns just dummies him, and we're like, wow, this guy's not nearly who we thought he was. But what if Chumayev goes in there and does the thing? I mean, here's the thing I'm pointing out. Chemayev, I think Burns is right, does need one more before getting to a Gilbert Burns. But the intrigue is so high, and I think the test so pure that a Chumayev fight against Burns might be the preferable option we'll see last but not least uh we have some audio al Quinta was at ufc 268 and lost um pretty handily he got stopped i believe in the first round as a matter of fact and then decided uh to call it quits on his own podcast call me al he decided to retire we have audio of it let's play it
1: fighting again i'm le- I'm, I'm thinking that's it man i'm thinking that's it whoa yeah, it's that's the way to go out, you know. I mean, obviously you want to you want to go out on a win, but this shit's not worth it, dude. You saw Michael Chandler yeah. and Justin Gaethje fight; those guys yes. they beat the hell out of each other. That wasn't worth it. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't know. It was the first fight that I really like gave up in. I never I, he didn't knock me unconscious, and uh you know i kind of turned you know i turned and i covered up i was still conscious i knew what i was doing yeah but i kind of just wanted i didn't want you know i I, that was it i i uh um i i really i realized that it he hit me hard it probably was not going to be a good night for me uh i was not confident in in my preparation in my cardio my wrestling uh these guys are training hard these guys are training yeah three times a day two times a day really hard my body just can't hold up to that anymore so i uh yeah i i, I definitely is as the first time in my career ever that i gave up in a fight
0: hmm I I commend Al for his candor. I I commend that. That's a thoughtful guy to me. I know Al got bitter at me, I think around May or so, because I tweeted disparaging things. At the time, Tito Ortiz was still uh, fucking around with whatever he was doing on the Huntington Beach City Council. And my view is, you know, uh, If you're covering a fighter as a fighter, you are as an MMA media uh, type, you are required to have a degree of professionalism about what you say and what you don't say. But you know, if they're going to do engage in politics or or anything really outside of it, um, I'm not going to say the gloves are off, but they are not subject to the same kind of scrutiny. You want to get into public office, I think that they are entitled to uh, every bit of. In some cases, praise, but also scorn that gets heaped upon them. Like the fact that you either serve in the military, or you serve in the fighter to uh, serve it as a fighter and fought as one, even a decorated one. In the case of T Ortiz, a Hall of Fame one. That doesn't that doesn't immunize you from uh, criticism. But while I disagree with him there, I, I have nothing but respect for Al. I have nothing but praise for Al. I, I find him to be one of the more thoughtful guys in the sport. He's got a lane for real estate he's been carving out for himself. And listen, dude, he had a good career. He beat Kevin Lee in the main event on Fox. He beat Diego Sanchez. He beat Jorge Masvidal. He beat Joe Lazon, Ross Pearson, Rodrigo Dom. He beat Ryan Couture. Dude, he did good things in his career. He was on The Ultimate Fighter. Like, I mean, you just can't say enough um, positive things about him. And, you know, he didn't win the, the Ultimate Fighter finale. I think Michael Chiesa won that. But, you know. The guy was in part, it was the only season of Ultimate Fighter that was live. You know, this guy was part of something really special in MMA for as long as he was around it. He was part of putting Long Island on the map in mixed martial arts. And I want you to hear what he had to say there. You know, play it back if you have to or find his podcast and listen to the whole thing. But, you know, listen, he gave it a run. He tried really hard. He knows what it takes to succeed. He had high levels of success himself. But in the end, he began to feel differently about it. And listen to him talk about, like, dude, you got to train like a fucking animal. It sounded like he doesn't want to do that anymore. I don't want to speak for him, but it sounded like that. And more to the point, he just doesn't want to take those beatings anymore. It just doesn't... For some guys, that risk will be worth the reward. And if they want to go do that and they can meet all the requirements, then we go let them do that. But for the ones who begin to think, like, you know what? That was, for a time in my life, something I wanted, and now maybe it's not... Um, I don't judge him at all. In fact, I commend him for a job well done. This is a game where you get in, you try to make as much of an impact as you can, and when it's your time to go, whether whatever the reasons may be, here he is reflecting upon that he just doesn't seem to want that anymore. You can't judge a guy for it. That's, that's the game. That's the life cycle. That's how it goes. I have high praise for a guy like Al and the way in which he is willing to articulate that he didn't want it and the ways in which he is willing to candidly articulate um he kind of in his in his words that he may have given up you know he's telling you like his body is just in his mind are not in a place where these kinds of challenges he wants to raise himself to the level he has to 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 meet them anymore i think he had a very commendable career i if, if and he, by the way he didn't like declare i'll never fight again who knows you know mma retirements often tend to be fleeting but uh, you know he's lost four of his last five. Granted, one was to Habib, and then but the last three, you know, um, losing to Cerrone the way he did, and then Hooker, he got beat up against Cerrone, he lost to Hooker um, in Australia, uh, and then you know he just got kind of got wiped off the plan, or the wiped off the, the the round there in you know two minutes and twenty five seconds against Bobby Green in New York. Didn't lose to chumps, went the distance with the best to ever do it, won in a main event on national TV, beat legends like Masvidal, Lausanne, and Sanchez. Dude, he had a good fucking career. He had a good career. He has my level of respect, and um, whatever he decides to do, whether it's real estate or anything else, um, you know, I'll, I'll say it. Uh, he can be mad or not. I, I don't know how he feels. He may not be that mad, but um, I think it was an honor to cover his career. I really enjoyed it, and I'll say this, dude. Al was one of the guys, even while he was signed to contract, you know, making noise, about the plight of fighters, making noise about um, getting his fair share, making noise about some of the ways in which fighters get pushed around. Al was a big voice for Project Spearhead for as long as that lasted. Like, you know, the guy stood up for himself. He went in there and tried. He did pretty well. Fell short, I think, obviously the last three, you know. uh, But, okay, that's the game. Not everybody's Habib. So I wish happy trails to... Al Iaquinto. Rage and Al gave us a lot of good memories and a lot of great fights, and uh, he should be quite proud of himself, and I suspect that he is. And that, ladies and gentlemen, leads us now to a segment we do every week. This one, I will take all the arrows because BC is not here, but it's when you hold us to account for the stupid and or factually incorrect things that we say, it's time for Dead Wrong. Mm. Okay, number one. Jesus, how many of these are there? Fuck, there's a bunch. All right. (laughs) This ought to be fun. Uh, From Callum, during Friday, the 12th November episode, when discussing Leon Edwards' past opponents, Luke mentioned Edwards faced Cowboy in London. His UK opponent was actually Gunnar Nelson after his fight with Cowboy. The Cowboy fight was in Singapore. Yes. Uh, Okay, fair enough. All right, number two. I don't know how this is wrong, but I guess it could be wrong. Uh, Okay. All right. Last Friday at the one twenty seven oh two mark. I like it when you all timestamp it. While discussing George Lucas plagiarizing the movie Dune, Luke misquotes the actor Desi Arnaz, Uh, Ricky Ricardo by saying, quote, you got some splaining to do, which contrary to popular belief is a line that he, in fact, never said in six seasons of I Love Lucy. I'm not sure if that's the Mandela effect or if Luke just misremembered, but in any event, he's dead wrong. Really? Hold on just a second. Isn't that like he has been famously, um, famously? Oh, he said. Okay, hold on. I'm half wrong. Lucy, you've got some splainin' to do. Perhaps the most infamous and viciously debated line on the internet. This off-quoted and memed Ricky Ricardo line is more of a a paraphrase, as he never says this exactly. He did say things like, Lucy, splain, or splain that if you can, which evolved into this misquote. All right, I'm wrong, but I'm not like super, super wrong. Like I didn't like totally get it wrong, but okay, that's an interesting correction. All right, from Jesse. Hey, Donks. My name is Jesse. I got a dead wrong for my fellow... uh, (laughs) I'll just say... um, I'd like to say that Forrest Gump is the movie I hate the most. Can't stand it. Now, at 29.48 of episode 228, Luke talked about Dana's past tendency of overhyping potential prospects before they're ready. His example was Felipe Nova being heralded as the next Anderson Silva. However, on Tough Season 8, Mir Nogueira. Dana proclaimed Felipe Nova to be the next GSP. Felipe would go on to lose his tough eight finale to Efra- uh, Efrain Escudero. Last but not least, shout out to the great Felipe Novo for his work as a cardiac nurse in NYC. This is true. And for his work on the front lines during the early stages of the pandemic from a true donk. P.S. We need a monthly BC live chat. Manich, get on it. You guys can have it if you want. Um, hold on. So let's double check that too. He may have called him both, by the way. Uh, Felipe... Nova let's see okay um, let's see I'm trying to find this here. you know what let's see here we go as the next Anderson Silva I'm pulling this link up here that says it has it Oh. <laughs> Dana White's Jun- Junie Browning is not the next Ultimate, or they're not the next Anderson Silva. All right. Let me see if I can find it because the internet, if you Google Felipe Nover next to Anderson Silva, there's like a page full of results that say he is that. Um, but maybe you're right. I'll, I'll see. All right. Last but not least, Max Holloway's losses. Uh, from Robin, y'all are dead wrong. Luke is dead wrong. Uh... At 9.30 into episode 229, Luke states that besides Max Holloway's attempt at 155, the last time he lost a featherweight fight was in 2013 against McNuggets. But he's wrong. Uh, No, before the Volkanovsky fights, dumb fuck. Before it. You think I did not know that he lost the Volkanovsky fights at 145? It was before that. Before that. But okay. all right, that's fine. There you go. Those are our dead wrongs. Are you sure about the Felipe Nover next Anderson Silva thing? Because I got to tell you, I'm pretty sure about it. Uh, I don't know. We'll have to go back and look. You might be right. All right. Tip. Uh, last segment we're going to do here. I'm going to call it a, a, a show. We do this every Friday. BC's not here, but I got a good one for you. Time for tip to tip. I believe that's the name of the segment, right? Or is it tips or is it? Yeah, I believe it's tip to tip. Okay. Mmm. This is easy. This is where we give you a recommendation. On anything. Life, food, music, movies, whatever you want. I got one for you. Came out at midnight today. God, aren't it, is this the 10th studio album? How many is this of theirs? Uh, but I, I don't, I don't, I'm going to look this up. But the new album from Jedi Mind Tricks is out. The Funeral and the Raven. Let me look at their discography here. So they've got the Psychosocial, Chemical, Biological, Electromagnetic, Manipulation of Human Consciousness, 1997. Violent by Design, which is considered to be their classic, 2000. Visions of Gandhi, 2003. Legacy of Blood, 2004. Servants in Heaven, Kings in Hell, 2006. A History of Violence, super underrated album, 2008. Perhaps my favorite, Violence Begets Violence, number seven. The Thief and the Fallen, number eight. The Bridge and the Abyss, number nine. I was right. The Funeral and the Raven, the 10th studio album from Jedi mind tricks, which at this point is just stoop and Vinny Paz. It used to be just a law. He is no longer there. Folks, if you don't know anything about them, it's just hardcore rap about a lot of things. It'd be unfair to say it's not about more than this, but a lot of rapping about who's the toughest, who's the best, who's the strongest, who's doing all the interesting work. Vinnie Paz put out two albums during the pandemic. Let me just sort of say one thing here. If you're not into this kind of rap, uh, it's probably because you piece sitting down. But more than that, the real thing I want to point out is that a lot of times, great artists that you might be more familiar with, they sign to a major label um, studio, and they get put on the shelf, or they can't put out that much content, or there's just a lot of interruptions to their creative flow. These guys at Jedi Mind Tricks and Vinny Paz, they own their own masters. They own their own label. I think it's Enemy Soil. Used to be Baby Grand, but now it's Enemy Soil. They control... Everything they do, they're in total control, which means they just get to put out as much content as they want. These guys are insanely prolific. Since 2000, in the course of 11 years, they've put out 10 albums. That's almost an album every single year. That doesn't include Season of the Assassin. It doesn't include God of the or include God of the Serengeti. It doesn't include Burn Everything That Bears Your Name. It doesn't include all of you know Cornerstone of the Corner Store. From Vinnie Paz, all of his albums. It doesn't include any of those on top of it. Plus, then you add in Army of the Pharaohs, the bigger super group, which has in, you know, Reef the Lost Cause, Apathy, Self Titled, um, you know, Crypto War Child, uh, Planetary, all those guys. They are putting out shit tons of work, seemingly every six months. Today is the new one The Funeral and the Raven I gave it a spin Before we got here Check out Secondhand Smoke And I Am the Wooden Door Those are the two ones I would put out If you like raw rap Hard body shit This is for you Right I like Pew pew I like the guns going off That's the kind of rap That I like And this is Right up my alley Folks like Do you listen to any rappers Under 40 I probably should But I don't Um, But I would just tell you Take the Pepsi challenge If you don't like it You don't like it But I, I, I suspect There's a decent chance You will And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a solo show on Friday. We will have a guest host with us on uh, Monday as well as Wednesday. Reminder, tomorrow I will have your post-fight show live for Misha Tate taking on Ketlin Vieira. Reminder, I will have your post-fight show. I don't know if it'll be live or not, but I'll have something for you. For Sean Porter and Bud Crawford. Yes, I'm doing two post-fight shows tomorrow because... Can't stop, won't stop. The grind continues. We have plenty of content coming your way. Live coverage all weekend for boxing, for MMA. Not going to leave you hanging. And then we're right back to it on Monday. So my family's going to love me. As a reminder, thumbs up on the video. Hit subscribe if you are so inclined. We have merch. You can go to morningcombat.store. Combat. store, of course, is the place to go to. And, um, yeah, you can get gift cards there. We have all kinds of merch. um, Whatever you might need. Email us. Morningcombat at gmail.com for dead wrongs, for fan subs, for anything else. Any questions you might have for the show. And uh, what else? What else? What else? What else? What else? I think that's it. Follow us on social media. Oh, yeah, you can give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can help us scam the algorithm. Yeah, lots of good stuff coming your way. So check us out tomorrow. We'll have you uh, some good coverage for the UFC and for boxing. Have a good weekend. Don't text and drive. Uh, and send Brian Campbell on nice note on social media as he kicks his feet up and enjoys everything about all-inclusive resorts, including the communicable diseases that I'm sure he is likely to contract. Okay? All right. For him, for everyone else, my name is Luke Thomas. Until next time, may all of your gains be loyal.